Thanks so much for being here. I want to add my welcome to Matt, especially to our guests. We're delighted that you can be with us this morning. Most of you are aware that we have been in a series that Matt has been leading us through in the book of Jonah, but as we have done occasionally, we've had some interruptions where I'll come and share a message from the book of James, and that is what I'll be doing this morning. This morning's message is titled, True Religion, that's the series, The Test of the Fight We Can't Win. So, if you have your Bibles, you can open to James chapter 4. We'll read there in just a moment. As has already been mentioned a couple times, there were some elections this week. No matter where you find yourself on the political spectrum, I imagine that the tone of the political discourse, the conversation that is happening right now, I I would even say the hatred that's being spewed from different directions is less than encouraging. But of course, contentiousness in politics, the public square is nothing new. 150 plus years ago, it went far beyond words, brought us to the four bloodiest years of our nation's history in the form of the American Civil War. And during that time, Abraham Lincoln is reported to have said, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. For God is always right. Now, I take that with a grain of salt. I realize that he was a politician. So I don't know the degree to which that represents his true heart, but I will say it does seem to represent a humility that's seldom evident in our own political times and debates. And frankly, if I'm honest, it also contains a humility that is often lacking in my own areas of conflict and quarrels with those in my home, in my life. Because as I come into an argument with someone, I assume I'm in the right, and by default, that means the other person can't be. So obviously I'm justified in my attacks, and I assume that God will back me up. He will advance my cause. Lincoln's quote reminds me of the account in Joshua chapter 5, where Joshua is preparing for battle. They have come to the city of Jericho, and they are camped around it. They're preparing to go into battle. The land that God has told them is theirs to possess. And in the midst of his preparations, Joshua encounters a man standing before him with a drawn sword. And uh, well, I think just about in any scenario, that's reason to pause and, and ask some questions. So that's what Joshua does. He says, are, are you for us or for our adversaries? Because that really matters in how I relate to you person standing with a drawn sword can be a bit threatening. What was the reply that he received? Was this individual for him? Was it for his adversary? Well, the response that he gets is no. No, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. I don't know if you noticed, but that wasn't really one of the options. That wasn't what 
Joshua is asking, saying, are you on our side? Or are you on their side? And, and the response is no. No, not on your side, not on their side. God is never bound by our limited vision or imagination. And we might have expected a response saying that Israel was God's chosen people. So, of course, he is on their side. He's told them to possess this land. It's clear from the rest of the passage this is actually God standing before him. And, and, and so, our expectation would be that, of course, he's coming to show himself on Joshua's side. But instead, what he reveals is the question isn't whether he's on Joshua's side. The question is whether he's on the Lord's side. Is he following him? God makes it clear that he doesn't take sides. Instead, all are to surrender to him. And I think that gives us a great picture of God's perspective of every other conflict. And that's something that we're going to see as we look again today at James chapter 4. The last time we looked at James, almost two months ago, we highlighted from verses 1 and 2 of James chapter 4, how conflicts among us always arise from the passions within us. We looked at the reality that fights and quarrels always begin as an inside job. It comes from the passions and desires that are in our hearts, and then it overflows as we hold on to our cravings, as hold on to our wants that are run amok, and they spill over into our battles with one another. So as we continue in James chapter 4 this morning, we're going to look at, at how that reality is only part of the problem. Because our biggest problems with each other reveal an even bigger problem with the one who is unlike any other. Read with me, James chapter 4, the first 10 verses. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And this is really where we stopped last time, but we're going to continue through the rest today. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at His Word this morning. Well, thank you that you have given us your word, that you have given us your spirit by which we might understand it. We pray that you would move among us. You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. You would illumine what you have for us this morning to our hearts and minds. We might know you better, follow you more closely. In your name we pray. 
Amen. Well, two real quick, broad view observations as we look at this passage. James begins with the expectation that there are fights and quarrels everywhere. He's, he's writing to churches that are scattered, and he just assumes this is going on wherever this letter is going. The second observation is that though that is a universal problem, that it is found everywhere, that does not mean it is an acceptable issue. This is not something that is just okay. This is not no big deal. He has very strong language meant to get our attention that we might respond rightly to it. But we are going to see this morning is that if we realize our problem is worse than we want to admit, we can experience a solution more satisfying than we can comprehend. So the first place that we're going to begin is that our relational problems are even bigger than we care to admit. As I said, James is writing to a scattered church and he is assuming there is conflict among believers everywhere. He, he is assuming the presence of fights and quarrels in churches, in homes, in businesses. And he can make this assumption knowing that quarrels aren't dependent on the mix of people that we're with, but the mixed up people that we are. That's the point of his first two verses. It's saying these are things that are coming from within you. That's the reason that you're having these conflicts with one another. It's a universal reality and one that James doesn't have to qualify with an if. If there are fights and quarrels among you, this is where it's coming from. You know, he's just, they're, they're there. This is part of the reality of what we experience in a fallen world, even as believers of Jesus Christ, even as followers and disciples. There are areas where our hearts and passions rise up and we pursue things in ways that are harmful to ourselves and to those around us. But it gets even more uncomfortable with that in the verses that we're going to look at today. James moves from showing us that our biggest threat comes from within us rather than outside of us. And he moves to exposing an even more troubling reality. Or to frame it more accurately, our fights and quarrels expose a more troubling reality. And that's the fact that we are not on God's side. Our conflicts with one another expose a problem bigger than any of us wants to admit, especially when we are in the midst of a passionate defense of our cause. I'm assuming that I am righteous and just in my arguments, but my fight with you uncovers an underlying feud with God Himself. Let's reread verses 2 through 5. It says, you, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? The picture James paints in these verses is one of quarrels among believers only to find God standing there in their way with sword drawn. Each assumes, of course, that God is on their side because they've been asking Him to vanquish their adversary, calling upon His help in their trial, their trouble with this individual. But when they ask whose side he is on, his response is, no. No, I'm not on your side. 
and I'm not on your side. Your calling as my disciples is to love one another. But here you are going to war with each other. Your first responsibility is to love me with all your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength, all your soul. But your passions and affections right now are ruled by love for something other than me. Realize that your willingness to fight with one another, to elevate your personal desire over your relationship, exposes that you've replaced me as your first love. You have put some other affection, some other allegiance in the place that I alone belong. No, I'm not on your side or their side because your calling is to be on my side. To be my followers that reflect love for me through your love for one another. And you each left my side when you took sides against one another. James introduces this reality to us saying you do not have because you do not ask and you ask but you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, you find yourself in this situation because you've already left me out of the conversation. You didn't even ask to begin with or when you did ask, when you did pray, it was for selfish pursuits. Your personal advancement, this wasn't prayers of love. Your prayers aren't for your brother or sister, they are for yourself. Your prayers don't reflect my priorities, they reflect your own. They aren't expressions of love for God, but of love for yourself. What we see here is very similar to what we see in 1 Peter 3, where... Peter connects husbands' honor toward their wives with whether or not their prayers are hindered or not. Our earthly relationships matter to heaven. They're not irrelevant. And I think one simple application for us when we find ourselves in conflict or tempted to bear grudges or hold something against one another is to check the content of our prayers. Are we praying? Is it just for our cause that we would be shown right or righteous? Are we praying for the other individual? Are we praying for not my will but yours be done? Praying for one another is not, go get them, God. But for the good and the blessing of the other individual to, as Jesus says, love one another as we love ourselves. Are we praying for them the same things that we desire for ourselves? Because when we're doing that for one another, it's really hard to remain in that place of bitterness, and resentment, unforgiveness when we are asking God to bless them and to care for them and to show his kindness to them in the same way that we desire those things for ourselves. We need to recognize that in each of us exists a self-centered heart, a spirit of self-interest that is constantly vying for control of our life and actions. The controlling power of that spirit was broken when God came into our life, but until we get to heaven, that spirit will always be fighting, always be trying to seize back control, always be trying to assert its will over us. Our desires, our passions. And our self-seeking hearts don't just drive a wedge between us and our brother, but between us and our God. 
And James, James can't state it any more bluntly than he does in verse 4. You adulterous people. That's a strong charge. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The horizontal relationship troubles that we experience, James says, they always expose a vertical relationship betrayal. For us to be in this predicament with one another, something has already happened here in our hearts that is off, that is a Breaking of that covenant relationship with God. In both Old and New Testaments, God uses the marriage relationship to show the intimacy and the priority our relationship with Him is to have. And that picture is so strong that James points out when quarrels reveal we are prioritizing our own passions and pursuits above our commitment to Him in order to go to war with one another, He calls us adulterous people. Just because this sin is common enough that James can be confident that it is present everywhere believers are found doesn't mean it is passed off by God as understandable. Or no big deal. See, for us, we tend to compare our sin to those around us. We do this so that we can minimize our own sin, so that we can excuse it, justify our behavior. This is especially true in conflict, where we're comparing ourselves against our adversary. We justify my poor behavior because you did it first. I always assume that what has been done to me is worse than anything I am doing to someone else. That's the deceptiveness of my own heart. Friends, that's not how God perceives our sin. There's this recognition here that our sin is first and foremost against the God who made us and redeemed us to be His, to love Him and reflect Him. And we have first violated that relationship in order to be willing to violate the others around us. Both combatants are identified as adulterous in this situation and making themselves enemies with God. That's a strong charge. It's also a fight none of us is going to win. God is one enemy we don't want to have. I mean, there's no chance. That's fighting way above our weight class. It's not just sinful. James is trying to point out it's stupid. These aren't the fights we want to pick. And if that's a bad word in your house, I'm sorry, but it fits here. It's foolishness. Spiritual adultery was a charge leveled against Israel numerous times in the Old Testament. And it's not just stating that we've broken a commitment. It was a violation of the covenant relationship between God and His people. It was a betrayal of intimacy. It was to be reserved for God alone. It represented the pursuit of other lovers instead of Yahweh. It was as strong a charge as came against God's people. And James, by using it, is meaning to underline the full weight of our offense against God. See, our quarrel with one another isn't contained to a boxing ring with ropes around it that just contains you and me inside. It's not a tidy 
little limited sphere. We are sinning against Christ. We are sinning against His body. We are grieving His Holy Spirit as we are ruled by our passions which we're more committed to in those moments than we are to God Himself. Submitting ourselves to Him. How He says that we're to relate with Him. To love Him. To display Him. Jesus define discipleship as dying to ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Him. There's an element where we appreciate the freedom of grace and the gift that it is, the fact that it cannot be bought, that is an amazing blessing that we will never tire of praising God for. But we can forget that we have responsibility. We have ways that He has called us to follow Him as disciples. And in following Him, we don't follow Jesus like we follow someone on Twitter. It's not a like like, retweet. One among many options that I have in my feed. He likens our relationship with Him to marriage where saying yes to Him means saying no to every other suitor for our affections and allegiance. Jesus didn't lay down His life for you in order to invite you into an open relationship. He doesn't say, yeah, let's live together, but you're free to hook up with someone else if you want. That's not the call of our relationship. If your spouse is flirting with someone else and you don't get upset, you don't get jealous, you're not very invested in your marriage. And James says, God's invested. He sent His Son to die for you. This is His commitment to your relationship. And He calls us to be faithful as well. And again, something about jealousy, because this is a word that James uses about his spirit that dwells within us. Jealousy in our understanding, I think, often misses how much it's really a term of God's care for us. Because we picture jealousy with a boyfriend or girlfriend that's threatened by a rival. While God commands... There to be no other gods before him, but it's not because he can't compete. It's because he loves us, he wants the best for us. When we are unfaithful to him and prefer anything else in the whole of creation, as was read this morning, it's always a lesser thing than him. On like a totally different scale, we're talking creator to created thing. Something that was made from the words that came out of God's mouth or the dust of the earth that He formed and blew His breath into compared to the maker of all those things. The one who could create with simply a word and make light appear and worlds form and a universe be thrown into being. There's no comparison. So, yeah, us loving other things, maybe that's an insult to him because there is no comparison. But 
But it's not that he's threatened by those things. The reality is, when I look to another relationship, then Christ is the source of my affection, the place I put my hope, my security, where I seek to derive the respect that I desire, two things will always happen. One is that that relationship, that other person will always fail to satisfy my deepest longings. Every time. And second, that relationship will strain under the burden of expectations that I place upon it. The reality is, me putting those expectations on someone else, it's not helpful or satisfying to me, and it's not kind or loving towards that other person. My wife, my kids, my pastor, my boss, my buddy, none of those were meant to shoulder that kind of weight and responsibility when I'm not finding my identity and resting in the love God the Father has for me. I instead run after it in other relationships and go to war with those who won't deliver it the way that I think they should. If I don't root my need for love and satisfaction in Him, every other relationship is going to be a disappointment for me. Every other relationship will provide for me reasons for disillusionment, disappointment, discontent, because no other relationship can fulfill those ultimate longings that are meant to be realized by God himself. When we place our God-sized longings on our human relationships, they simply can't bear the weight that our relationship with God alone was designed to fulfill. See, those desires that we have, they're not necessarily evil desires. They're just meant to be fulfilled in another place. My kids can't support the weight of all the dreams and hopes that I have, things I wish I would have done differently. My wife, my boss, look for the affirmation, the support that I feel I need. I need to be looking to God for that satisfaction, for my identity to bear the weight of those great needs. In Jeremiah 2, God states two evils his people committed. First, they had forsaken him, the fountain of living waters, and the that could is that they dug cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that couldn't hold water. And this loses a little bit in translation for us because we don't often have cisterns around just use the tap. But in this culture, a cistern was a tank that was dug to collect water and hold it for use later, often for feeding animals, things like that. But God's description of what Israel was running after instead of him was that they were digging these cisterns, but they weren't even holding water. They were broken run down. So that, that's problematic in itself because they weren't doing the job that, that they're designed by these people to do. But also a problem is the fact that they're digging cisterns where the best case scenario is to have water that just sits there and becomes stagnant. When God is seeking to give them fountains of living water. Life-giving water. It's a ridiculous trade. And even at its best, cisterns are a poor replacement. So to, on top of that, also fail to accomplish even its inferior job description, 
Again, it's pointing out the foolishness of running after other things, lesser things, things that can't begin to compare with the God of all the universe who has loved us so much that He sent His Son to declare His love and His commitment to us so that we never need to know and wonder, is He for us? Will He be there? Is He committed to me? Those aren't questions we have to ask again and again and again. Because he's declared it for all time. He's shown it. He's put it to action. And when we have those questions, we simply need to look back again at where he has revealed it for us. God looks at us as as we run after these other things. And I, I think... His heart breaks because he loves us and he wants so much better for us. I mean, I mean, it's like we have a dog that goes to the toilet and laps up the water there thinking this is the best there is. All we want to do is chase him away because you have no idea what I want is so much better for you. What I have for you, oh, it's so much better. That's God's disposition towards us. Who He is, what He offers is so much better than the things we foolishly run after. The things we elevate in our minds, in our hearts, in our passions. If we realize our problem is worse then we want to admit we can experience a solution more satisfying than we can comprehend. Verse 6, James writes, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Our identity as, as spiritual adulterers is key to understanding the depth of our betrayal. Shows how seriously God sees what we've done in choosing other things over Him. But it also provides the key to hope. Because of who we are in relationship with. Yes, we have violated our union and been unfaithful, but He will not be. He does not retaliate or desert us. James declares here, when we humble ourselves, he gives more grace. Conflict is the fruit of our pride. It's the assertion that my wishes are more valid or more important than the desires of my brother or sometimes more important than my brother himself. It's behaving as though I know what is best and fighting for it at the expense of those around me and my relationship with God. God opposes such arrogance. Not because he's threatened by it, but because we are doing harm to ourselves and to others, and he wants so much more for us. What a picture we have in Jonah of the foolish arrogance of going our own way and the harm that it can bring upon ourselves. Not harm that it does to God, but on the one proudly resisting him. And what we see there is this picture of God pursuing him to get him to quit drinking the toilet water. Because what he offers is so much greater. The humility prescribed here is not a passive endeavor. 
Humility is not a call to do nothing. It's not a call to put aside all ambition. James calls us to humility in action. Actions that reveal we are submitted to Jesus. Action revealing we are on His side, not just looking for Him to bless our desires. Being on His side, seeking to have His will be done, means that we recognize who the real adversary is. It isn't one another, but the enemy of our souls, the devil. When we are quarreling with one another, we are doing His work for Him. So James exhorts us, to resist him and said, followed by the promise that as we do, he will flee from you. Again, what an amazing statement. He doesn't qualify it with anything else, but resist him. As you resist him, he will flee from you. This is the one that 1 Peter 5 says prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And James says, yeah, that guy. He'll flee from you when you resist him. We are not helpless against his attacks because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. But in order to see him flee, we must resist. Seeing how much we can get away with isn't resisting. Seeing how close we can get to the fire without getting burned isn't resisting. Allowing those angry thoughts about another to linger isn't resisting. But resolving our conflicts. Forgiving as God in Christ forgave us. That is resisting. Giving the enemy no foothold. By not allowing the sun to go down on our anger. That's resisting. And the devil will flee. And let's not stop there with amazing statements. Ponder the magnitude of each of the life transforming realities James holds out for those willing to humble themselves. And Again, the context in which she's writing, these are to individuals that are currently in rebellion, identifying as having enmity with God. Their current description is spiritual adulterers. And James holds out these promises. Greater grace is available to those who are humble. The devil will flee from you if you resist him. God will draw near to you if you draw near to him. Though you are a sinner and double-minded, God will exalt you if you humble yourself before him. What amazing promises. Again, notice that each of them comes by placing ourselves on the path that God prescribes. Comes by actively following him and his way. Not just pursuing our own way, our own wants, our own desires. He's writing to believers who he has already said the Spirit dwells within, who wouldn't be called adulterous people unless they already had a relationship with God. Otherwise, they wouldn't be violating that relationship. This isn't a works based salvation or righteousness. This is a call to a humble recognition of who has the right to call the shots. It's the pathway of humility that positions us to receive His great grace. The reality is, in our walk with God, we get on the wrong path at times. We pursue our own ends. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And he's calling us back to the path that is best for us. Our way is a broken cistern. His way is the fountain of living water. The path to greater grace. Grace greater than anything we could produce or procure for ourselves. Grace greater than all our sin. But again, notice the action 
that we're exhorted to, the path we are called to walk, to submit to God, to resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. We're not just called to a passive place. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Him doesn't just happen. Holiness and intimacy with God aren't things we simply drift into. Grace is free in that it can't be bought or earned, but it doesn't mean the life of the disciple is a vacation. These are commands and directives for followers, not suggestions or good ideas, multiple choice options. But none of these tasks are divorced from His Spirit's empowering presence either already highlighted that that dwells within us and the greater grace he gives us partly is to be able to walk this path it's a reminder that we are not on our own so some questions for us this morning how are you submitting yourself to God where are you asking him to support your side rather than Submitting yourself to Him. What specific areas of your life do you need to resist the devil? Are there particular relationships where you've given Him a foothold? Are there habits that you're no longer fighting the enemy of our souls, but just giving in? Where have you grown too relaxed in your fight against sin how are you drawing near to God are prayer and scripture reading regular vital parts of your life or schedule are you pursuing fellowship with others are public worship and preaching prioritized in your week what actions do you need to cleanse your hands from What thoughts and attitudes need to be purified in your heart? Do you need to engage others? Take more drastic measures than you currently are in any of these areas? I I want to be totally clear. This isn't a clean up your act and then come to God message. It's come to God. Use your fellowship with Him as the fuel to cleanse and purify your heart and life. That's all the difference in the world. Getting clean isn't the way that we approach Him. It's the result of being with Him. It's the fruit of relating with Him. He gives grace, but He also calls us to action I'm going to be real blunt when we reach a place like verse 9 where it says be wretched and mourn and weep let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom it can lose me I can think of it as extreme over the top even when I'm aware that the laughter that's talking about is kind of the, the laughter of mocking you know, there's, there's a haughty pride in that. What it's, talking, it's not just talking about we can't have fun. But when it's talking about responding to God, about being broken over our sin, over the damage done to our relationships, I can think this is almost over-the-top language. Maybe that's the point I really need to look closer at then. It could be that I think it's extreme and over the top because I come from a perspective where I don't see my sin as serious enough to weep over. The hurt that I've caused others doesn't produce mourning 
in me. The charge of spiritual adultery, that gets my attention. But has it really registered how seriously God views my offense against Him? And I think instead of quickly moving past language like this, because it doesn't seem to fit my offense, I need to stop and consider whether my offense is worse than I realize. Worse than I want to admit. And maybe what seems justified because of what someone did to me Something that isn't that big a deal to me should be. Maybe I need to pause and ask God if the Bible is right and my perspective is what's out of whack. A man with a persistent cough that is persisted for weeks, goes into the doctor. It's affecting his sleep, even his conversation, since he can't go more than a minute or two before his cough interrupts. His doctor runs some tests and x-rays reveal a growing tumor on the man's lung. Instead of telling the man about the mass, the doctor prescribes a strong cough medicine, which makes the man happy, because that is what he was hoping for. He's hoping it wasn't a big deal, Cough medicine helps him sleep better that night, but his physician didn't actually help him. Cough syrup is no remedy for lung cancer. His doctor needs to let him know his condition is worse than he realizes, so he can help him walk towards a treatment that does more than just suppress his cough. James is letting us know you don't have a cough. Of cancer. When we're dealing with cancer, we need to get radical. So the treatment James prescribes is consistent with the diagnosis of spiritual adultery. If the diagnosis didn't register with us as serious, he's hoping the prescription will. One of the most striking things, convicting things I've found from Jonah these last couple weeks has been the response of pagans to God's word compared to the response of the prophet. It's one that was identified as God's man. Jonah thought he knew better than God and proudly resisted him again and again. The Ninevites repented with sackcloth and ashes showing great humility from the king to the livestock. And that was without any proclamation or promise of mercy, just on the possibility that God might relent. So how much more should we be willing to humble ourselves? Knowing His mercy and kindness. Knowing His Spirit. Having His promises. Do I actually want the living water He offers do I still think my broken cisterns have what really satisfies? Do I think I'm already experiencing all the grace He has to offer me? Do I still think I know what's best for me and the best way to get it? Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. That's what we want in our arguments, right? When our holding on to our desires, it's, it's victory. It's to be exalted, be proven right, just, worthy of praise and honor. Philippians 2 declares that because Christ humbled himself, God exalted him to the highest place, the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. It's the glory of God the Father. Our victory, our exaltation comes the same way. 
as we humble ourselves. God offers us something greater than winning an argument. He offers more grace. He offers exaltation that only comes by way of humility. He offers to draw near to us as we draw near to Him. Will we release our grip on the things we think we need and reach for Him alone? The problem is worse than we want to admit, but He offers life more satisfying than we can comprehend. We don't have a closing song this morning, so I'm going to end in a little different way. I don't want to move too quickly from anything that God might be doing by His Spirit, the way that He's speaking to us. I want us just to take a moment to be silent before Him, which I realize can be uncomfortable in a setting like this. We want to do it just to ask Him, Lord, the things that you want me to do to respond from the list of questions we had earlier, some other thing that he has brought to mind or put on your heart. I'm not assuming all of us are in active conflict. For some of us, these, these are helpful reminders, heart checks, they're preventative maintenance, maybe preparatory would be a better word. Because we'll still find ourselves in conflict at different times. And so this is a call to respond quickly. To not give the devil a foothold. A reminder of the importance to draw near to God. Because he will draw near to us. Now for some, there may be current conflict. There may be things you're trying to work through. We're frustrated enough that you've given up trying to work through. Humility is the way forward. Ask for greater grace to respond. Ask that God would help you to cry out to Him that His will be done, not yours. Resist the devil. Humble yourself and flee to God. And maybe you're not in a relationship with Him at all yet. If you don't know Him, see Him as the fountain of living water. A place where life is found. Abandon all those other things and run to Him. He is the only one that is the ultimate hope of our souls. I just ask that we take a minute where you are, close your eyes, remain quiet, just asking God to help wherever you're at to respond to him rightly, to his word, and then I'll close this in prayer in a minute. Lord, I pray for each person here that you would help us to respond to you. Lord, would you help us to see the significance of pursuing our own way, betrayal of our relationship with you, Would you help us not to be numb to that? 
Would you help us to be broken by our sin, to grieve its effect in our lives, in our relationships? Would you help us to grieve for the hurt that we do to those around us? We don't want to be opposed by you. Would you help us to humble ourselves? Would you help us to resist our true enemy? Help us to run to you. For any that don't know you, oh, would you... Would you throw on the light for them and help them to see how all their sins can be washed away, how they can be made whiter than snow, how they can be brought into relationship with you, not because they've been good enough, because they never can, but because you have done everything for them. You have made a way for them to know you and enjoy life everlasting. Lord, for our good, for your glory, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for giving attention to God's word.